Welcome back to series two of Mud Between Your Toes. In this series, I'm going to let my guests do all the talking. People with a great and often inspirational story to tell, or maybe just something funny. So sit back and enjoy Conversations with Pete Wood. Hello, my guest today speaks to me from Queensland. He runs a cattle stud for a rare Zimbabwean breed called the Thule. But Jack Milbank's journey to Australia began in Kenya and later Zimbabwe. His parents escaped the Mau Mau Rebellion, but tragedy was to follow them across the continent. This is the story of a family whose roots stretch deep into the African soil and despite unimaginable personal hardship, have succeeded to forge a life well-lived. So Jack Milbank, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Hi Pete, thanks very much for having me. Jack, it's safe to say that you are a salt stick with one foot in Africa, one foot in Australia, and your tackle hanging down in between. So it probably makes sense to start at the beginning with your family who moved to Kenya, what, in the early part of the 20th century. What drew them to the continent? Because despite the hardships of Europe, East Africa was still pretty much the Wild West, despite its reputation as a place of hedonism and glamour for the Europeans. Yeah, absolutely. I think my, my grandfather was a Yorkshireman. And so um, he was used to the, the wild winds and, and heather and, um, and I suppose the sort of grouse moors of the north. And after World War II, you know, everything was pretty miserable in, in England. And, um, you know, my dad was born in just before World War II. So uh, he never really got to know his dad until he came back in 1945. And um, I think the temptation for sunshine and, you know, the, the wild sort of attraction of colonial Kenya. Um, so they, and I had a, or he had a great uncle that went out there in 1908. So they had some sort of connection. And um, yeah, so always involved in the outdoors and wildlife and, and that sort of thing. And, and yeah, I suppose so the, the journey started then. And um, my was, my dad just grew up grew up on the plains in Kenya and um, never really uh, was supposed to go to Cambridge I think or, or or to finish school in England but just couldn't bear to leave Kenya again so you know we ended up just staying staying in Africa for as long as possible. I mean, in a way, it was the land of milk and honey, but I expect it was also a pretty tough life. Although, if as you say, your family came from Yorkshire, uh, it was. Uh, they were pretty much tough people anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's an, an interesting segue where my, my mother's family, uh, they, they were originally English as well, but had spent four generations in Malta. And as a, uh, you know, well, in Naples and then born in Malta so that they could get their English passports. But, but on my mother's side, uh, her dad was an agronomist, which I only found out as I arrived at University of Queensland. And, was trying to pick the shortest, easiest degree that I could possibly do before going back to Zim and take over running the, the sort of cattle property and, and game ranch. And um, yeah, unfortunately, um, I ended up uh, yeah staying in Australia because that was the time at which um, everybody was kicked off the farms. You know, so I left. I left there um, when everything was humming along in the late '90s, and then uh, yeah, I just never went back. But back in Kenya in the 1950s, 
you know, all of that uh, land of milk and honey changed for the white people, didn't it? Because of the Mau Mau uprising, by all accounts, to the outside world, it was a pretty scary time as it conjured up all these wild, crazy images of bloodthirsty oath-taking. I think in reality, only 32 white settlers were killed over the eight-year insurgency, but it, it did spell the death knell of British rule in Kenya. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think my, my dad left school and uh, joined the, the Kenya regiment straight away and where he had an interesting story. He fancied himself as a bit of a cross-country runner and um, his greatest claim to fame, aside from attempting to uh, beat the four-minute mile, was he, he ran in a race um, to, you know, like a regional qualifying race or something and ended up getting lapped by a, a Kenyan. Uh, who ended up being Kip Kino, who went to the Olympics and broke the broke the world record. So he didn't feel so so bad that he performed so poorly for the Kenya regiment in the in the sixteen in the mile race. You obviously come from a great sporting family, which we'll get to later. Um, before your family left Kenya for what was then Rhodesia, um, your mother experienced something that was really disturbing and quite macabre. This might be a thing of myth. I don't know. But did she not wake up in the morgue with a tag tied to her toe? What exactly happened there? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, as you can imagine, there would have been some fairly wild parties in in um, Machakos or Mathaga Country Club, or you know, generally, you know, it was well before my time. But Mum was involved in quite a bad car crash, and she she. Uh, went into the back of a combine harvester and I think was in a coma for about five days. And they chucked her in the boot, took her to the hospital. And um, yeah, I think, uh, I don't know the, the nitty gritty details, but yeah, they'd pretty, uh, pretty much thought she was a goner and, um, but miraculously pulled through. And, um, you know, a lot of people uh, credit that, that little stint in her, um, incredible um temper and uh and quite you know quite uh, enthusiastic personality that she was renowned for across southern africa <laughs> I, I i expect it gave the the mortician or the pathologist nightmares for years to find one of uh, their cases suddenly come back come back to life yeah, yeah, but she probably screamed at them saying, what the hell do you think you're bloody doing? Let me out. <laughs> <laughs> like so many Europeans, they then made their way to Rhodesia. You weren't born in Kenya, you were born in Rhodesia. Um, do they speak about their journey? Did they go overland? How did they get to Rhodesia? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my dad was at school with Jeff Kent and so they, Jeff was a bit of a plotter and schemer, and uh, well, I hope he doesn't mind me saying that, but you know, he saw the huge potential in tourism in Africa, and so decided to partner up with both my granddad and my dad, and um, they decided to form a, a little tourism or safari company called Abercrombie and Kent. And oh wow! They, okay, I know they, Abercrombie and Kent well. Yeah, so they, my my grandfather looked after. Um, people coming on safari in Kenya and uh, you know after the Mau they I suppose decided to to move out of farming and into tourism for a bit and um, yeah my dad just well was was put on a train down to Cape Town 
and uh, then sent by boat from Cape Town to Buenos Aires to go and learn about life for a while. And he spent 18 months in Patagonia on a, on a sheep property, just, and I think it was the most miserable time of his life, but uh, learned a lot about sheep and large scale properties and riding on horses for days on end. And then, and then came back and um, yeah, settled in, in, in Rhodesia and, and I suppose partnered back up with his, his dad and Jeff. And Jeff Kent had gone over to America to sort of gather tourists uh, to come on photographic safari. And so my dad set up Abercrombie South and, you know, to open up Southern Africa. And all, all of the, um, uh, I suppose this was uh, an interesting time because uh, they, they left Kenya, uh, had a brief stint in Natal, um, plum farming, and then, and, but they didn't really like South Africa in the 60s. And so, well, 50s and 60s. And, and so, uh, went up to join my my mother's parents who were in uh, Escora estate in in uh, near Wedza. and so uh, Escora was a uh, Escora was a, a lovely cattle and citrus uh, property and tobacco and um, so then yeah my parents were married in Natal and then moved up to Wedza and bought a, a farm relatively nearby and um, yeah and then and then I suppose went about cattle farming and uh, tourism sort of wrapped into one so they would host uh, anybody who was interested to go and uh, visit Victoria Falls, Okavango, Zambezi you know sort of opening up tourism into Zimbabwe in those early days. Well, obviously that entrepreneurial spirit runs in the blood so uh, they they did cattle as well what breeds did they have? Yeah so I suppose um, this was all in the early 60s and uh, 70s and then obviously the bush war broke out and so my dad was quite involved uh, having his his father fighting in the second world war and then him in the Mau Mau and then moving to to Rhodesia and then another war so uh, the um, at that time I suppose being away for fairly long stints in the Chateen was uh, left a lot of the, the farming up to my mum and then as soon as the bush war had finished and, and I was born right at the end of the bush war um, Abercrombie and Kent was sort of was going fairly strongly and um, so my dad spent a bit more time away on safari and so mum was in charge of running all the cattle and um, she was did a fantastic job at choosing um, you know some beef master some charbray uh, and it wasn't until I suppose um, you know, there was a little bit more tr cattle trading when my dad came back into to running the, the cattle. Um, and, and I suppose what happened after the, the bush war is anybody that was cropping had lots of spare um, grazing land. So my dad's strategy was to lease as much grazing land as possible. And um, I think we were spread out across five different farms and about 20 or 30,000 acres and um, just running extensive beef throughout Wedza and uh, Rosawi River and all that sort of area. Um, yeah, so so then uh, I suppose, you know, my parents got divorced around that time and the um, we used to have these hair-raising trips to school where there was, as you know, around sort of where there's strip roads and there's only one strip of tar and they would usually play chicken with each other, neither my mum or dad because they lived on next door farms, but, you know, absolutely hated each other's guts. 
and and uh, so neither would would agree to get off the road. So we'd wait until the absolute last minute until someone gave way, and, <laughs> and then we'd swerve off onto the side. So it was an interesting interesting time. But um, yeah, I think that's when when Mum really got into breeding cattle, and my dad really got into trading and and going into the TTL or the, you know the tribal trust lands and and buying these hardy little Mashonas and Thule's and, and things, and then seeing how much, you know, how well they performed. And my mum was focused on beef masters and, um, and some Shabrays. So, you know, I was exposed to all sorts of different cattle. And um, yeah, I think that was probably the start of my interest in it. Yeah, Jack, Jack tell us more about the Thule. Uh, this is a indigenous Zimbabwe breed uh, and indeed, it's the one that you brought to Australia or introduced to Australia. Um, how how long has the Thule been around? Sure. So it wasn't me who brought them into Australia, but it was the CSIRO. So the CSIRO is the lead scientific organization in Australia. So they, uh, they I suppose, formed the um, Thule and Baran Consortium in which uh, John Frisch and Chris O'Neill and a consortium of leading scientists went to Rhodesia to try and, uh, I suppose, find some genetics that were more suited to Australian conditions. And uh, so Len Harvey uh, in the 1940s and 50s, um, I suppose, went against the, the instruction of, I suppose, the British South Africa company that was instructing crossbreeding between uh, you know any native, you know any um, any native cattle with European and, and British genetics. So bringing in, and ironically, my dad worked for the Hereford Society in London and was was you know right in the early days and was in uh, charged with bringing purebred Hereford bulls into Africa. So uh, you know irony goes round in circles, doesn't it? But um, yeah, so I suppose the. You know what what Len Harvey did when he um, was investigating what the best way to to improve genetic performance of cattle in southern Africa, and and he came across the the Thule's and named after the Thule sands and you know the the color the, the color of the cattle matched the color of the sands along ah, the Thule River. Okay, they are beautiful looking cattle, I must say. Yes, absolutely, and and so. Yeah, I suppose he said, no, we've got to preserve this. So he hand-selected, the, the, I suppose, the best animals he could and, and refused to crossbreed them. And, uh, you know, they were so successful, uh, you know, on their own, but then maintaining a nucleus of purebred Thule that then they would use to crossbreed with other British breeds. And that gave them an equivalent toughness and hardiness that otherwise a Brahmin would have been used for. Um, I always think of it, as um, a Brahmin is a little bit like my mother's personality, quite feisty uh, <laughs> and not, not something you want to corner in a corral. So the, um, whereas Thule's are very docile, uh, you know, very um, good meat quality, uh, no, no carving issues. And so I suppose that's where the, the um, tropical adaptation of their genetics suited perfectly for Australian conditions and why then the CSIRO, CSIRO guys went over there to to select the best of the Thule's to bring over to Australia. 
Um, and it, it's been a, a huge project that, that lasted 20 years. So obviously with the quarantine, uh, em embryos were sent to the Cocos Islands and to surrogates, and then those surrogates were born, uh, sorry, the surrogates gave birth to the purebred tulies, which avoided the cross-contamination of, you know, any potential parasites, diseases, viruses that would have occurred if they had imported livestock into Australia. So they were housed at Cocos Island before then being brought, the, before the progeny that, that were embryo transferred, they were then brought over to Australia. And then together with the semen that was then were brought in, uh, so there was only nine bulls that were selected. Uh, so there was nine bulls, 74 heifers, and that was the start of the herd, but that was not a commercial herd. That was for research purposes with Syrah. Um, and it sort of went in fits and starts. And where where we, um, I suppose, where I got involved was starting to research this and um, with with a very curious, you know, mind, we just bought a cattle property and I was looking at what sort of breeds. And obviously I, I turned to Africa to to look at, uh, you know, it made so much more sense to have a, a tropically adapted African type breed because that's the similar conditions to Australia um, than a European or British breed, which just makes no sense at all. Um, and so, yeah, I, I started researching, you know, beef masters and Mashonas and Tulis and Barans. And, and the reason I settled on the Tulis is a really interesting story. So, um, one of our good friends uh, that actually went to Sirencester with Rob, my older, oldest brother who lives in Mbukwis, uh, still on Forrester Estate now, actually. Uh, and so he, he went to Siren with, with a guy called um, Sterling McGregor. And Sterling's brother, Thine, owns Willa Luca Station in South Australia. And so as, as uh, luck would have it, uh, the McGregors uh, had a fantastic Murray Gray stud. And they took a lot of the Thule semen and crossed it with their Murray Greys. And um, uh, as, as part of a, quite a big project for S. Kidman & Co, which is the biggest cattle company in Australia. And so there, there was this history where, and this is only in 2013. So oh, 2007 okay. to okay. 2013. So the research project sort of ended with CSIRO when funding was cut to CSIRO uh, by the Keating government. And so then everything was put on ice for a while. And anyway, it sort of then got revamped by the McGregors and, and the sale of their herd to, uh, well, I suppose the, the, the decision to start breeding Murray Greys and Tulis in North Australia, you know, getting good meat quality together with a tropical adaptation and a light coat colours so they're much more um, heat tolerant and and parasite resistant and that sort of thing. Um, anyway, what happened then Kidman's was sold to, to Gina Reinhardt and the Chinese investments and, and basically what happened, it, I believe, and it's quite hard to get the finite story, but the whole project was knocked on its head. And so therefore there was then no more purebred tulies. And the, you know, so, that's been the case now for since since 2015, I think, and I, I I hope I've got my story right. It's it's again piecing all the pieces of the puzzle together. But um, so I managed to then track down the guy that bought the last remaining um, Thule semen 
so yes, I managed to track down the, the last sort of bits of Thule semen that was still from the, the import days with Syro. So it was from the 1990s. And then those last purebred Thule heifers. And, and so that's what forms the nucleus uh, of the herd that we, I suppose, going to redevelop a nucleus herd of purebred tulis, uh, so that we can now resupply and re-kick off the Australia, you know, the tuli, the purebred tuli genetics for Australia. But uh, Jack, Australia has an abundance of rare breeds. In fact, when I looked, uh, something like twenty to thirty from the the zebu to the Belgian blue, have the tuli as a breed generated a lot of interest in Australia? As far as beef quality goes, how does the Thule, say, compare to the Wagyu or the Angus or Charolais? Yep, absolutely. So I suppose one of the, one of the progeny of that, that sort of those imported uh, embryos and semen that was born was one called Zungani, and, or his nickname was Honey Bear, uh, Riverview Honey Bear. Uh, and Honey Bear was sold to a to the americans when he was two years old and was flown over to the us and um and i suppose he, he has been part of a longitudinal study conducted by texas a&m where they were comparing angus uh, red angus centipole and tule and they they performed incredibly well and that longitudinal study was only just completed in 2018 so i suppose the you know, the work that's been put into researching tulies has been a bit sporadic and stop and start. And they've, you know, there's, you know, huge interest. And then, you know, particularly when it's a drought period or, you know, feed is hard to come by. And then as soon as the seasons are good, people revert back to Angus and, and the European breeds. But uh, it's now become, you know, I suppose the, the climate change and, and reduced reliability of, of feedstock and susceptibility to heat, uh, all these sorts of things. And uh, also, these... I, I should imagine what people like me want on our table. Uh, we want a, a cow that uh, can be easily grass-fed. Absolutely. So th this is one of the really interesting points is that as a, uh, you know, as a, a breed, they, and being in, Afri in Africa, they've genetically evolved over 5,000 years to, to survive harsh tropical conditions uh, or, you know, very dry uh, conditions, uh, lots of parasites, lots of disease, but also predators. And so they have naturally evolved to be herd animals. So they stay very close together. And so one of the things we're doing on our farm, which we, we've, is called Heartwood, and is um, you know, a bit of a smart farm. So we're playing with all the latest technology and GPS trackers on every on every beast and looking at NDVI imagery and total dry matter maps to, to look at where they graze and what their sort of grazing patterns are. And if you're a fan of regenerative agriculture and, and good land management, uh, what you want is, uh, as, as one of your previous guests, Alan Savory, would espouse to, is, is high intensity, high intensity rotational grazing where lots of animals eat down the grass and then move on. So if you think about a Thule's genetics, it, it sort of hangs together, you know, stronger as a herd. And, and so they, they graze together, they stay very close and that's their protection mechanism against other predators. And then they move on to the next zone. And, and because there's very sparse food, they are very efficient feeders. So they, they heavily graze a very small area and then move on and leave it. And so they, they, 
you know, they spread their dung there, they urinate, they, they cultivate the soil, they, the seeds get dug up and then they move on and they don't come back there for a long time, which is exactly what you want in the regenerative agriculture process instead of something like a Brahmin, which is evolved out of, you know, I suppose in India and other tropical environments where they've got a flight response. And so when you look at the grazing patterns of a tule, which is aggregated and, and close together and intensive, and then they move on, uh, which has, so that genetic characteristic has a direct implication on soil health and then pasture quality, and then you know the likelihood of success in those harsh environments, compared to the flight response of a Brahmin, which you know disappears and disperses across the landscape, and they they graze sporadically. So you end up with this selective grazing where what happens is the, you know, they just picking out, picking out. And so what, what yeah. you end up with this statin grazing pattern is then a gradual decline in soil quality, pasture quality uh, and grazing management, which then ends up with this soil degradation. And so one of the things we're really interested to look at is, is the genetic predisposition to collective grazing and comparing that in the Thule compared to a, um, you know, to a Brahmin and then crossing it with a few others. And so looking at that, that uh, phenomenon, and we've been lucky enough to, to get a, I suppose, a few project collaborators on it. So one of which is, is ILRI, the International Livestock Research Institute. Uh, and, and that's with Olivia. So he's based in Ethiopia and then Simon Kemp at University of Edinburgh. Uh, and then we've got a few other other people. So actually, I've managed to track down uh, Chris O'Neill from. He's now with CQU, Central Queensland University, and he was one of the scientists that worked with John Frisch when they went over to, Zim to Zimbabwe and selected those first tulips. So um, what I'm doing is sort of reassembling all the you know people with a bit of expertise and um, and trying to I suppose put the pieces of the puddle puzzle together again, and then partner with a couple of um, we've got a Kassan group at a lovely big property in the Northern Territory that we're going to, you know, develop up a partnership with over time and just evaluate um, the, you know, on a broader scale, these specific Thule characteristics uh, and, you know, I suppose, prove the point again that, that we can establish a really robust breed that's suited to North Australian conditions. I thought uh, the interview with Alan Savory was fascinating, although he has, of course, made a few enemies um, around the world because of his ideals. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, 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 I'm a, an advocate for, um, I suppose, his, his style of management. And, and you know, I've, I've been an agronomist for 20 years and, and um, yeah, worked closely with lots of, uh, lots of the graziers and, and beef producers in Australia. And, um, yeah, I've definitely seen the, the impact of... of um, you know, questionable land management in some cases, and uh, and you know, very good land management in others. And so, I, I think we're only just at the cusp. But I think mm -hmm. we we're not even. You know, there's still a lot more to learn with this. Um, the genetic influences on grazing behaviour, and then the you know the impact that that then has on the landscape. And, and, you know, the chefs in all the top restaurants right now want to know where they're beef has come from and i think this is incredibly important so um well oh, we're going to be we're going to be putting wagulis on the menu so that'll be a wagyu tuli cross oh wow so, okay that's what a great so, name waguli 
Yeah, and so, we, you know, how would you like your Waguli, sir? <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's, that's enough about the Thule. You sound like an all-round sportsman and academic. You were awarded uh, uh, the prestigious Nuffield Scholarship. What is the history of the scholarship? Because I don't know much about it. Is it similar to the Byte Scholarship, which was open to all students in uh, northern and southern Rhodesia, Zambia, and Malawi? I, I'm unfamiliar with that. It's similar to a Churchill Fellowship, or there was actually Zimbabwean Nuffield Scholars. So it was a fund established by Lord Nuffield, who invented the Morris Minor and the Nuffield Tractor. Um, and in, in good old English fashion, it was a, a method by which to send um, prospective young agriculturalists out into the world to find out what's going on and, and um, discover the best of science and technology and innovation, although it wasn't called that, you know, this was in the, in the 50s. But basically, after World War II, to rebuild Britain. And, you know, so they would give one good student or, or and it, it usually a mature age person so they weren't a scallywag but they actually had matured enough that they were serious about learning and developing and so they were usually in business and farming and would go out and research a topic for two years traveling the world and then bring that technology and science and share it with all their peers at home so that that evolved over time to to spreading to a number of different countries throughout the commonwealth and um, yeah, I was I was lucky enough to to get it in two thousand and six, and so I I travelled. Uh, you know, I suppose it, it it evolved quite well where the Australians were very organised, and and Jim Gelch was the CEO at the time. He's done a he did a fantastic job at putting together what was called the GFP, the Global Focus Program, where they sort of organised an itinerary of a whistle stop tour around the world. So I think we did something like twenty six countries, in in about two months. So you just um, oh, visiting it, every major, you know, big farms, government, uh, industry, all over the place. And so we went Philippines and, and China, Ireland, um, UK, France, all over the place. And, and so, yeah, I, I studied um, uh, globally competitive horticultural uh, production processing and marketing. Um, you know, with a with a renewable energy and regenerative ag bent to it, and um, that sort of ended up with me. Um, I suppose the culmination of what I thought that meant was um, was a brewery. <laughs> and, All right. Uh, I was actually sorry. I was I was going to mention that you also have a brewery. I was going to get to that later. Actually, beef and well, beer. It sounds like a match made in heaven. Yeah, beef, it, it is. And um, well, I suppose we learned a little bit about beer on the Nuffield Scholarship, mainly tasting it in each different country and um, while trying to learn at the same time. And I I'm hope I'm proof that you can have fun and learn and drink at the same time. Um, but the, basically what, what I love about the brewery side of things is that, you know, I was looking at value adding. And, and so basically you're taking barley or wheat and hops, which are both things that which we're involved with in agriculture and um, combining it with yeast, which value adds it, converting it to alcohol. And, um, you know, then we're, we're using, we use rainwater and solar uh, to make our beers. So we're using renewable energy. And then we've set up 
I suppose the, the very start of the craft beer movement in Australia as this sort of a brew pub model. So our venue is called the Brew House and we make all our beer on, on site and serve it there. So there's no freight. And uh, well, we, we now obviously distribute a bit further afield. And, um, but the, the model's really good and we use lots of local ingredients. And um, you know, we've got a huge diversity of beers that we make now. Um, and, and can you buy yeah, your beer in Coles or other supermarkets around Australia? Uh, Woolworths is our, so we're Dan Murphy's and BWS. Uh, we started off with, with Coles uh, and found that we, we yeah, the, the, um, the, Woolies, the Woolies team looked after us really well and we've got a fantastic relationship there and we, we now distribute all over Queensland. We do all the Great Barrier Reef Islands and um, we've got quirky little names. So we've got Thirsty Turtle and the Drunk Fish and a Rusty Roo. And uh, yeah, so so that's, um, you know, that's, that's oh, and actually we've, we've got a beer called the Fat Heifer. Okay. We, <laughs> we, which is a Hefeweizen. So that's our sort of, that's our beef. That's the, the perfect beer to go with one of my Waguli steaks. Jack, in my introduction, I mentioned tragedy followed your family. In fact, in 2001, your mum was murdered. Are you able to tell us about this? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's not not great timing uh, in in anyone's uh, calendar. But so I I just graduated from university in in November, and I started a new job in December, and then mum was killed in January. So it was pretty much uh, you know as I was. And I'd only decided to, well, I hadn't actually decided to stay here. I, I had just graduated and I was about to come home. And, but during that time, the farms were taken, their mum was killed. And, um, you know, I suppose it, it really... There didn't uh, seem to be a lot to come back to. No. And, you know, as, as feisty as mum was, she, she was still a, a wise woman and, you know, a very smart businesswoman. Um, but I think it probably honed my focus that, um, you know, the, the risk to reward in Africa was, that, you know, that I, I could see the writing on the wall and, and things weren't getting better. And my brother was having a really tough time. And um, I, I just, I think I made the decision then and there that, you know, stuff it. You know, these yeah. these guys are treating us terribly and, you know, I suppose uh, it was time to move forward and to and to be just determinedly forward focused, which is what I then did. And um, you know, it's 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 been it was a you know rough a rough trot for a bit, but it's um, you know I think mm. what I'm now you know doing in Australia and still have you know good links, and we're actually setting up a, a, an office in Joburg and a project in in Zim uh, this this year coming up. So. You know the fact that we've now managed to to um, grow a number of businesses under my own steam uh, in a new country is, is, and now my brother's actually my brother left him, so he took over my mum's mum's farm when when she. This killed. is Harry. Harry, yes. So Harry Harry went back to Kenya uh, and really enjoyed it there, but but obviously he was. <laughs> persona non grata back in zim i think because he you know loved to bait everybody and get cnn and everybody in to expose what was going on um and then my, my dad was kicked out after he released his book and, and so i thought 
um, I told Harry he better come and join me in Bundaberg. It was actually a pretty good place to live. So Harry actually lives just you know just down the road from us here in Bundy now. And of course, your brother Rob had uh, suffered a stroke at an early age, didn't he? Which left him severely disabled. This must have also come as a terrible shock to the family, particularly yeah, as he sounded yeah. like a great sportsman also. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, we were obviously, uh, you know, all through that sort of, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, we had five Millbanks and, you know, all the sort of us Millbank boys, we, we played polo. Uh, rugby and and cricket, cross country, swimming. You know, we we were involved in all sorts of things and probably absolute hooligans running around. And um, you know, so I suppose it, it was quite a, quite a dispersion of a you know sort of family dynasty in Africa. You know, it, small as it as it was, but that's what it felt like to me as a kid. And um, yeah, so that with with um, me leaving and then Mum being killed and then Harry leaving. And then my dad going to England and then Rob having a stroke. Um, I was actually traveling around the world with my wife at the time, uh, in my, Jacinta, who's still my wife, but at the time we were traveling and I was actually uh, luckily staying with Harry in Kenya. And um, yeah, we, we got the phone call that, that Robert had the stroke. And so we would able, luckily were able to get straight down there and I visited him in hospital in, in Joburg. And um, yeah, I mean, just such a such a pity that um, you know. I suppose the time that it took, and and Heinrich was so generous in getting him down to the hospital as quick as he could, and sent his driver that drove all night, I think, to you know to get some of the drugs that he needed. But you know, trying to get from Mbukwe's, uh to a hospital when you've had a you know brain bleed, and and it, it just I think it just took too long, and um, yeah, so. Amanda's incredible. She she's just she's on Forrester, and um, yeah, they, you know, it's not. I can't, it can't they be battle on as do, as do many people in Zoom. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jack, we're running out of time, but uh, I think if anyone wants to find out more about the Thule Cattle Breeders Association of Australia, they can go to www.thule.com.au. Thule, by the way, is T-U-L-I. Um, and remind us again about the name of your beers. So the, uh, the brewery is called Bagara Brewing Company. So B-A-R-G-A-R-A, bagarabrewingco.com.au. And um, okay. yeah, so we, um, in, in hopefully you'll get to enjoy a thirsty turtle with your Boguli steak. Well, you need to sell them to Hong Kong. Um, before we go, do you miss Africa? Do you ever get back? I haven't been back since since 2006, and I, I do miss it. I've got uh, my dad gave me a whole lot of Larry Norton paintings, which which had uh, hung up all over the house. And um, obviously, I'll, I'll have my my African cattle, and um, yeah. So you know, I'll, I'll get the kids over there one day. None of my I've got three daughters. None of them have been to to Africa before, and um, Lexi's now 14, and um, so, yeah, I'm hoping to send her to Amiri to go and um, stay with the Travers and, and um, yeah. Discover their roots. Her. I'm actually looking yeah, at exactly. Larry Norton picture right now. Um, oh, great. Listen, Jack Milbank, I wish you all the best in your new life and your new continent. So thank you for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Awesome, Pete. Thanks so much. Lovely to hear from you and um, take care. And uh, I'll see you up in Hong Kong sometime soon, hopefully. Absolutely. Look me up. Take care. 
Okay, bye. Bye. Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.